Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Psalms chapter 63 this evening and verse number one down to verse 11. Psalms chapter 63, verse one to verse 11. O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see Thy power and Thy glory. So, I, so as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary... Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live, and I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help, Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee, and thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it, they shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword, and they shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. And everyone that sweareth by him shall glory, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Our Heavenly Father, we ask tonight that you would use your word in our hearts and lives, and in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Not every psalm, but many psalms begin with a, a subscript. It's under, verse, it's under the heading 63 before verse number 1. The subscript provides for us and to us insight on why the psalm is written. Sometimes it tells us the exact person that the psalm is written to or perhaps even by. This is the case in, in this, uh, with this psalm, a psalm of David. The, the, the script reads, When he was in the wilderness of Judah, Verse number 9 speaks of those that are ser searching and looking to destroy David's life. This is David is a, a fugitive of some kind. People are chasing after him. You're causing him to run, causing him to, to, to abandon his, his, his regular post. We're, we're inclined to think of David as, as running to the wilderness, hiding in the cave when he's being chased by the likes of King Saul or early in David's life. But while he was still a young man. And yet verse 11 teaches us that David is not a young man. He's not a shepherd. He's not early in his life. But in fact, he's the king. Verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God and everyone that sweareth by him shall, shall glory. So the picture is that David is already king. That David has already been appointed to the place that God has assigned and called him to. And yet, while David is king, there is someone who is chasing him. Bible scholars would tell us that this is the event that takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 15. 
Or David's own son, Absalom, has, has mounted a rebellion against David and has run David out of town. He's, he's deserting the, the things that his father had taught him, and now he is, he is trying to overthrow his own father and has caused David and his mighty men to be on the run. David has crossed the brook Kindron, and he is now entered into the wilderness. It is there that David writes... This psalm. Now, several things about the psalm strike us, but but let, let's just walk through it. Notice how the how the how the psalm begins. It's a it's a confident declaration. Look at verse number one. Oh God, and David begins the psalm in the wilderness with an address by calling out to God. And David is not calling out from a palace. And David is not calling out from a place of comfort. David is not calling out from a place of luxury where life is going well, where he's surrounded by all these circumstances that are beneficial or profitable to him. David is calling out to God in the place of the wilderness, a place of struggle, a place of suffering, a place of hardship. And David, in his hard time, calls out to God. It's interesting that in his hard time, in his difficulty, in his struggle, he doesn't call out to anyone else other than God. David doesn't call out to a friend. David doesn't ask for Joab or his mighty men. David doesn't ask for the priest. David doesn't ask for anyone other than God. He begins the psalm with an address to God. Oh God, thou art my God. He begins this declaration in the reality of who God is. The word is Elohim, creator God. He is setting the tone for everything that's going to come after this. Because you're my God, because you are God, I am calling out to you. It is this that we see this, and it is through this lens that we see this entire text. The entire text is built on the very foundation that God is, in fact, God, and that God is listening to David. This is how we should see all the events of our lives. So this little lens that we should see all the suffering, all the hardship, all that goes on in the world around us, all that goes on even in the world inside of us. There's nothing that is not under the jurisdiction of God. This is how David begins. Oh God. And notice this. David says, oh God, my God. So David is speaking of a great reality. The great reality is that God is there and God is listening. But David is speaking of a great relationship. Oh God, my God. Christianity is built on personal pronouns, isn't it? Remember when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray? Here's how you ought to pray. Uh, my Father, our Father, which are in heaven. And this is a personal pronoun. David is saying he's not just a God. He's not just the God. He's not pointing at God over there on the side and saying, look, there's help over there. Look, there's refuge over there. Look, there's a God who's powerful over there. He's saying he is my God in that he has a personal relationship with him. He's not just the God. He's, he's your God. He's not, just, he's not just our God. He's, he's my God. And David, David professes this. That David has a confidence in the relationship that he has with God. You, you may not know someone very well at all, but if someone begins using the pronoun my, man, you, it tells you something about them. If I said my Amanda and my Gabriel, 
and my Ethan, my Elena, and my Jesse. You may not know me very good at all. You may not even know my children, but you would know, well, that is probably somebody who he has a very good relationship with. Perhaps it's his sister, maybe a mom, a brother, maybe it's his wife or his children. When you use this word, it speaks of this, this strong, confident relationship which David is having here. You do not use the word my unless you are confident in the closeness of the relationship that you have. And David is saying, oh God, thou art my God. Oh God, thou art my God. Why, why spend so much time emphasizing the first six words, seven words of the verse? Because this is where it all builds from. This is the foundation. The rest of the psalm is really built on this understanding. The understanding that God is and does exist. God is and does give you and me our attention, even in our wilderness moments. And that this God who is existing and does exist and has our attention is willing and has made himself available to you and to me. You remember why David is in the wilderness? Do you remember why Absalom led the rebellion against David? Do you remember the unfolding events that led to Absalom's rebellion? It wasn't, it wasn't just what happened with, with Amnon and Absalom's sister. That wasn't the only thing. Why did that happen? You remember, you remember back all the way up to where we get to in Psalms 51, where David has entered into a sin, a very sinful relationship with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And David's sinful encounter with Bathsheba has brought about devastating effects in David's life, namely the loss of the child. And then after that, man, the catastrophe that plays out in David's family, where there's this turmoil and there's this fighting and there's this dysfunction that takes place. Stemming from what? Stemming from the consequences that David faces as a result of his sin. So David sins with Bathsheba and then all these dominoes begin to fall in David's life as all these things come closing in around David, leading to this point right here where Absalom leads a rebellion against David, calling David unfit to lead, turning the heart of the people of Israel against David, and then running David out of town. It would be easy to think that in your time of need or in your wilderness experience, it's easy to feel a sense of guilt. It's easy to feel a sense of separation. It's easy to feel a sense of isolation because, man, of the things that we should have done but didn't do, the things we wish we would have done but failed to do, the things we wish we wouldn't have done but did. And it's easy to feel a sense of guilt or regret or shame. And that sense of guilt, regret, and shame, man, does not lead us closer in our relationship with God, but actually takes us farther in our relationship with God. And David refuses to allow this sense of guilt, this sense of shame, man, this, this sense of regret or heaviness to cause there to be a wall between where David is currently and where he knows God to be. And the lesson is clear for you and for me. There is nothing that you can do that can make God loosen his grip on you. You belong to him. 
There's no amount of sin that you can walk in. There is no amount of rebellion that you can travel, that, that you can walk in. There's nowhere that you can travel that the king of the universe cannot go. Do not believe the lie that you are ever outside of the reach of God's grace. And David in the wilderness, in the wilderness because of his own sinful doing. David there cries out to God, who is not just God, but He is His God. Is how it plays out in the New Testament. There is nothing that can separate us, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And David is crying out to God. It's a very beautiful psalm. One of the most beautiful in all of the psalmist. David is crying out in this psalm to God, but it is based in this confident declaration that God is and does exist, that this God who is and does exist has his attention on David, and that David has a strong relationship with this God, not based on anything that David has done, but based solely on the character and nature of who God is. If you could remove yourself from a relationship with God, trust me, we all would have already. And God is stronger than that. God is bigger than that. God is greater than that. And David starts his psalm off with, with this confident declaration. You are my God and I have a personal relationship with you. By the way, the way that you and I have a personal relationship with God is not the same way that David did. David had entered a Davidic covenant where God had chosen to bless David and extend David's throne so long as David existed and even well after David existed. And God enters into a covenant with you and me in a different way. Not promising us a throne forever extended, but promising us a king who would come and die for our sin. The way God made a relationship available to you and to me was through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That if you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus our Lord. None. That's a, that's a wonderful promise. Hey, that God has entered into relationship with us, that God welcomes us in, that God treats us not as enemies and rebels, but God treats us as his sons and daughters. David is confident in this declaration of who God is and all that God has done. So notice this. Notice the, the, the cause and the effect. So because this is who God is and because this is what God has done, then this is the back half of verse 1 all the way to the end. Early will I seek thee, and my soul thirsteth for thee. So David's confident declaration swells inside of him so that now there is this compelling desire for who God is. Well, where does the desire for who God is, where does, it, does the desire for all that God possesses and all that God has and the person that God is, where does this come from? It comes from this declaration. It comes from the reality of who God is. Oh God, and you are my God. It comes from the reality of who God is, the relationship that God has had with David. David's desire comes from that. It stems from that. It's not the other way around. The text does not read, I seek you, and therefore you are my God. 
The text reads, you are my God, and because you are my God, I will seek you. So what shows, this is where, this is where we want to get to, what shows the desires that we have? So what is it there that David then can sincerely say, early in the morning I will seek thee, and my soul thirsteth for thee. What, what is it then that causes this to reveal itself to David? What shows us our desire? What shows us the things that our soul really longs for? What reveals our heart to us in the way that David's heart is being revealed in this text? What shows us our desires? Three things. Number one, the things that we're after. You'll listen to it in the first four verses. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to thee or, or, or to see thy power and my glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary because of thy loving kindness is better than life and my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live and I will lift up my hands in thy name. The way that you know that you have met the real, true, God, who has revealed himself to us and made a relationship available to us, the way you know you have really met him is that you hunger and thirst for him. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and they shall be filled. This plays out differently in the New Testament, where Peter even talks about, man, taste and see the Lord is good. And if you have tasted of the Lord's goodness, if you know the Lord to be good, then why do you go after such trivial things? This is the same thing David is making. Why is it then if we who have known the Lord to be good and we who have entered into relationship with the Lord, not based on our own goodness, but on the good, gracious nature of our good and gracious God, why is it then that we ruin our appetite by going after other things? Do you remember when you were little and your mother would not let you eat candy or cookies before supper? And she would say to you, you're not allowed to have that because you're going to ruin your appetite. Remember that? How many moms and dads in the room, you tell your kids that? They want cookies and brownies as you're trying to make dinner and you're fighting them off and you're holding back the hordes. Stay away from the cookies because I'm making dinner. You're going to ruin your appetite, right? And David is saying the same thing. If there is a way in which we make decisions, there is a way in which we can live in which, in which we ruin our appetite. There are a lot of things that you and I do, and just quite frankly, in the areas of money, in the areas of intimacy, in the areas of power or fame or prestige, that we ruin our appetite for God. They're, they're cheap substitutes for our appetite for the Lord. And David is saying, don't ruin your appetite because there is nothing in this world that can satisfy you. Here's what he says. Look at the verse. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy. God alone can satisfy. Sin ruins your appetite. 
Sin is a substitute for good desires and good hungering and godly thirsting in your life. It may fill you up for a moment. It may give you a cheap thrill or a cheap high, but it will ruin your appetite. And for some of us, the reason why we do not hunger and thirst for God the way that we should is because we are ruining our appetite with sin. How did David know that as he called out to God, that God would satisfy his soul? How did he know God would do this for him? David knew this because God had done this. That really picks up verse number two. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. He's talking past tense now. So as I have seen thee. Do you see the tense? Look, look at the tense in verse number two. So as I have seen thee. And David says, man, to, to be reminded of the desires that you do have, do not ruin your appetite with sin. Do not use these cheap substitutes as, as, a, as a way of filling your belly. You can only be filled with, with the Lord. The, all the deep desires of your heart can only be met by God. And to get to that place, recollect, remember God's mercy in your life. Look at it in verse number three. Because, of thy, because thy mercy is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Because thy loving kindness, loving kindness, which, which is steadfast love, unmerited goodness, or what we would understand as mercy. Same words translated mercy over and over throughout the Bible. That God's mercy in our life, the, the, the recalling and remembering of God's mercy in our life leads us to a place of obedience to God. But remembering God's mercy alone does not automatically produce obedience. It's something that we must get out and use. It's something we must put to work. It's something we must get out of the toolbox and sit it on the desk and use it as we go through our day. We must constantly remind ourselves of the gracious, merciful, steadfast, unmerited goodness, loving kindness of our God. And as David thinks on God in this way, what does he want? David wanted more of God and less of this life. Look, look at it again. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. If you want God more than you want, if you want God more than you want life, then you want God more than you want the joys, the entertainments, the cheap substitutes that this life offers you. And David is saying, God, you are more to me than all of these other things. David is not denying other things. David is not saying there are not other good things to have in this life. David is simply saying the other good things to have in this life, like gifts and money and relationship and possession and toys and computers and gadgets, these things are all fine and well, but these things are nothing compared to who God is and knowing the joy of who God is. God is better than all of these things. God is better than all of this to David. David is not denying their good. David is simply saying God is better than that. 
and anything, David is actually warning us here. And he's teaching us of how easy we settle for things in this life. This is where Lewis writes, and Lewis says, we're far too easily pleased with this life. We're far too easily satisfied. Even if our hearts are grateful, we're still settling for something that is not God. It is not satisfying. It is not filling. It is not full. David is saying, your loving kindness, as I see it, God, you to me are better than life. We should be careful of simply loving God for the gifts that he gives us and not loving God for who he is. It's easy. It's easy to love God for the gifts God gives and for us to fall out of love with the giver of all those good gifts. And when we love the gifts more than we love the giver, we become idolaters and not worshipers. And David is saying, I don't just love the gifts I love you, the giver of those gifts. I wonder if this is why we cannot do this life without wilderness experiences. I wonder if this is why God allows wilderness experiences to come our way to remind us of how easy our hearts gravitate toward and cling to and hold on to these gifts in life and fail to hold on to who he is. How do we know that we are desiring God for who God is? How do we know that we are, we, we are longing for God? How do we know we have this compelling desire like David does? How do we know we have that? Well, number one, evaluate the things that we're after. Evaluate the things we're after. Number two, evaluate the things that we treasure. That's really verse number five, six, seven, and eight. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed, I meditate on thee in the night watches because thou hast been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice and my soul followeth hard after thee and thy right hand upholdeth me. David isn't just thirsting for the living God. David is saying, I'm satisfied if all I get in this life is God. He not only, he not only longs for God, he not, and he not only desires God, he's actually only satisfied if he gets God. And he not only, not only longs for him, he actually enjoys God. Isn't this, isn't this, a, this is the, really the, the, the contrast, isn't it? Okay, it's one thing to say, I really love God for who God is, not just for the stuff that God gives me, but the evidence that we love God for who God is is not just we choose Him above the gifts, but that we actually enjoy His presence, that we actually want to be with Him, that we actually want to spend time with Him, that we actually want to be around Him. We want Him to be in and around us, the things that we treasure. David does several things in this, uh, these verses. First, he rejoices in God's presence. Look at it again. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate, thee, uh, meditate on thee in night watches, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Man, the images that come off of that text are unbelievable. This is similar to what Paul talks about in Philippians as he is in prison. A wilderness experience. Chained to a Roman guard. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse number 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. In the wilderness. What's David saying? In the wilderness, my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. And look at the end of verse 7. And I will, and will I rejoice. It's Paul from prison. What's he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. The call to you and to me is to rejoice. This is the command from the pages of Scripture. Rejoice. About 70 times in the New Testament we're told to rejoice. And almost every one of those times it is, it is in the present imperative. Which means we must make the choice to continually rejoice as we go through this life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, just in case you didn't hear it the first time, in case you weren't listening and you were asleep, I say rejoice. David, nor Paul, or any of the writers of the New Testament, they do not call us to rejoice in our circumstance. They do not call us to rejoice in spite of our circumstance. They call us to rejoice in the Lord. And that is the difference. It's not rejoice in your circumstance. And it's not Rejoice in spite of your circumstance. Just fake it till you make it. That's not what they're saying. They're saying rejoice in the Lord. It's a matter of focus, isn't it? It's a matter of where our eyes are set. It's a matter of who we're looking to. It's a matter of where our attention goes. This is the same thing here. It's not rejoice in your circumstance. It's not rejoice in spite of your circumstance. It's not fake it till you make it. It's rejoice in the Lord. You're not rejoicing in the world. You're not rejoicing in struggles. You're not rejoicing in what's going on around you. You're not rejoicing in the medical diagnosis you just received. You're not rejoicing in this broken relationship. You're not rejoicing in this bad news. You're not rejoicing in this troubled world. You're rejoicing in the Lord. You're rejoicing in who God is and all that God has done. Notice where David rejoices. Look at verse 6. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. When I remember thee upon my bed and when I meditate on thee in night watches. Been two wonderful images. When I'm laying in bed at night and I cannot go to sleep, I'm just going to lay there and rejoice in the Lord. You ever let your stress keep you awake at night? How many of you would say, that's me, Pastor. Stress keeps me up at night. Anyone whose hand's not up is lying. Or they're just popping all kinds of sleeping pills, okay? That's all of us. We, we, when, when everything in our world gets really quiet, then we're kind of left to our own selves, aren't we? Man, and there, that's where the real fear and the real guilt and the real struggle, that's where it comes in. And we start playing all these things over and over in our minds. And David is saying, on my bed, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to just rehash all this that happened through the day and all the stuff I would say different, all the stuff I'm going to say tomorrow, and all the stuff. If she ever gets in my face again, I'll tell you what. No, that's not what he's doing. He's saying, in that moment, on my bed, when it's just me and my thoughts, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. 
I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. He's not just saying that, though. Look what else he says. Look at the other image. When I remember thee on my bed. Now, remember where David is. Is he on his bed? Yes or no? The answer is no. He's in the wilderness. Okay, so so he's, he's painting for us an image. He's using this beautiful analogy. And he's saying, when I'm laying on my bed, when it's just me and my thoughts, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. But he didn't give us another image. The other image is this. And I will meditate on thee in the night watches. In the night watches, when trouble comes. Do you know why you need to watch at night? Because night is when trouble comes. Night is when the enemy is attacking. When's David going to rejoice in the Lord? When it's just him and his thoughts? When's David going to rejoice in the Lord? Look at verse 6. You know, meditate on the in night watches. Not when things are good. I'm not going to rejoice in the Lord when I get back in the palace. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord when I get all my comforts back. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. No, no, no. It's not, it's not rejoice because of your circumstances, and it's not rejoice in spite of your circumstances. It's put your attention on the Lord and rejoice in who God is. I've told you this story before, but I remember I remember when Elena was born, she was diagnosed with a heart condition, non-sustained metamorphic ventricular tachycardia. Don't ask me to spell it. I can barely say it. But I remember the doctor coming into the room where Amanda and I w were, and the doctor saying, there's been some complications, there's been some problems. We need to take your daughter, and we need to, I mean, Elena is just hours old. We need to rush her to the children's hospital across town. And we need one of you to go with us. Amanda was laying in the bed, so she couldn't go. Kissed Amanda on the forehead. She's crying. I'm crying. We said a word of prayer. And I climb in the back of the ambulance. And we take off across town. And I remember sitting in the back of this ambulance, this oversized ambulance, so they could fit this incubator in the back of it. And I remember looking at Elena's little body, and she's screaming, and she's crying, and she's kicking, and she just wants to be held or touched or hugged. And... No one's letting us near her. And they got all these wires and needles and leads running this way and that way. And I remember sitting there, and the verse that hit my mind at that moment, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And I remember thinking, yeah, you can't rejoice in this. There's absolutely nothing to rejoice in. This circumstance is no good. And then it was like the Lord wrote this on my heart. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say reach. I want you, I want you to see the verse. Go, go to Philippians. I want you to see it. Philippians 4. Look at verse 5. And let your moderation be known unto all men. And here it is. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. It's the same thing David is saying. It's the same thing David is saying. How do you rejoice sitting in the back of an ambulance at a stop sign in the middle of a city in the middle of the night with your child who's just a few hours old? How do you rejoice then? How do you rejoice in the middle of a wilderness when your son has turned rebellion and ran you out of town? How do you rejoice when you're chained to a Roman guard sitting in a prison cell about to be sentenced and executed? 
How do you rejoice in the Lord always then? You rejoice because the Lord is at hand. Look, look at the text. Rejoice. I will praise thee, verse 5. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. I remember thee in my bed and meditate upon thee in night watches. Verse 7. Because thou hast been my help, and therefore in the shadow of thy wing will I rejoice. You get the image now? And David gives you another image. He's saying it's like God is spreading his wings and God is pulling him close. And in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the prison, in the middle of an ambulance, in the back of a car, spreading his wings, and he's pulling him close. And the image is that mother bird stretching out her wings, pulling in her chick, so that it's right there close to her heart. That's the same image being given. Why rejoice? Because there's, because there's the presence of the Lord there. Why rejoice, Paul? Because the Lord is at hand. Why rejoice, David? Because God is pulling you in, bringing you near, not abandoning you, not forgetting you, not walking away from you, not leaving you on your own, but bringing you close. I would, I would dare say that if Jesus Christ was in human flesh, walking around with you all the time, sitting in the seat next to you, going to the office, walking to the, to the appointment, I would dare say that your stress levels would be greatly reduced. If Jesus were sitting with you in traffic, you would not be yelling at the cars in front of you. Why? Because Jesus is here. We take care of him. He can snap his fingers, the traffic parts, we're, we're right to work. Because if the doctor gives me bad news, he can just... Pick up some clay, spit on it, rub it together, and I'm good to go. I would dare say if Jesus were in the flesh with us, our stress levels would go way down. But you know what Jesus taught about that? The disciples say, don't go away, please don't go away. We don't want you to go away. What are we going to do if you go away? And what did Jesus say? No, it's, it's necessary, it's needful for me to go away. But if I go, I'll send another, a comforter. See, the truth is, he is with you in the form of the Holy Spirit, whether you can see it or not. He is there. And because he is there, we can rejoice every second of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. We're not rejoicing because we're happy about our situation. We're not faking it till we make it. We're not rejoicing because we're out of the trouble that we were in. We are rejoicing because the Lord is with us. And that's enough. And that's enough. So notice this then. David turns it on himself. Look at verse number 8. My soul followeth hard after thee. And David said, I'm going to run after God. I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to run after him. The pursuit of the Lord. In all that David says, in all that David is, in all that David believes, the pursuit of the Lord. I'm going to go after God. What is, what is God's heart on it? What is God's will on it? What does God's word say about it? I'm going to run hard after God. The last one. The last one, the things we trust. The things we're after, the things we treasure, the things we trust. What shows us our desire? What shows us what we really want in life? 
What, what's the mirror to the soul? What shows us our heart? The, 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 the things we're after, the things we, we treasure, the last one, the things we trust. That's really verse number 9, 10, and 11. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. Their portion shall be to foxes. But the king shall rejoice in the Lord. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. David says three things about his enemy. They go to the place of the dead. They're going to be slain in battle, and their lying mouths will be zipped closed. But David, at this point, while he writes this, he has, he has no circumstantial evidence that it has happened. He just trusts that in God it will happen. And David doesn't conspire. David doesn't say, okay, God, I'm believing in you. Now, here's the plan I have to get my kingdom back. If you'll strike Absalom with leprosy, then what will happen is he simply trusts in the Lord. Simple question for you and for me then. Simple to ask or difficult to answer. What do you trust in? When things go really bad, who do you trust? Who do you trust in? You trust in your own wisdom? Do I trust in my own plans? Do I trust in my own scheming? Or do we trust in someone else? Or do we trust in God? David's trust is in God while David is in the wilderness. And because David's trust is in God, it causes David to be able to rejoice in God. He doesn't have to scheme. He doesn't have to manipulate. He doesn't have to find a way out of evil. He doesn't have to... No, he just gets to trust. Simply trust in the Lord. How do we know our desire? Well, what do you trust in? What are you placing your confidence in? What are you placing your belief in? Is your trust in the Lord?